0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: The life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Those are the words of the great and now infamous Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century English philosopher. You can find them in his 1651 book, The Leviathan, which is often considered the founding text of modern political philosophy. Hobbes' big contribution was to challenge the right of kings and religious authorities to rule. The foundation of political power for him was the consent of the governed. And the only reason to hand over authority to the state or anyone else for that matter was for the protection of the individual. If that sounds familiar, it's because it is. That's basically the political philosophy that came to dominate the Western world from the Enlightenment on. It's what we now call liberalism. But we're in an era where liberalism and democracy are being contested from within and without. And while I wouldn't say that liberalism is dead, that doesn't even make sense, I would say that it's wobbly. What should we make of that? Is the liberal experiment coming to an end? And if it is, what does that mean for our political future? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is John Gray. He's a political philosopher, a prolific writer, and the author of a new book called The New Leviathans, Thoughts After Liberalism. Gray is one of the most interesting and provocative thinkers of this era. And his latest book is very much a continuation of a core theme in a lot of his work, which is the folly of human beings who believe that history, capital H, has some ultimate meaning or direction. For Gray, the liberal dream that history is over and democracy has won is, well, a dream. And Hobbes is at the center of his new book because he thinks Hobbes's liberalism was more realistic in its ambitions and that his most important lessons about the limits of politics have been forgotten. It is, as you might suspect, a challenging book, but it is an essential read. And I invited Gray onto the show to talk about what he thinks has gone wrong, and more importantly, where he thinks we're headed. John Gray, welcome to the Gray Area. Thank you very much, Sean. What's interesting about this new book is that you're not even bothering to announce the death of liberalism, you know, like Nietzsche's madman screaming about God in the town square. You're saying liberalism has already passed, and most of us don't quite know it yet. Is that right?
2: Uh, yes, I think there are many um, visible signs that anything like a liberal order or a liberal civilization has has passed. Um, in the last 30 years, shall we say, since... Um, 1990, 30-odd years, there's been an enormous, uh, after that moment in which it seemed that liberal democracy was going to become universal or nearly universal uh, following the collapse of communism, what in fact happened was that the transition from communism to liberal democracy did not occur in Russia, it has not occurred in China. The wars that were fought, so-called wars of choice by the United States and its Followers, including Britain, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, to some degree, and, and Libya, were all failures. None of those countries became democratic or anything near it. And in fact, they only damaged those countries in profound ways and damaged the United States, and particularly the United States and, and Britain in various ways. And um, So I think if you just look at um, geopolitical trends, you can see that the so-called liberal West if something like that ever fully existed, is in steep retreat. And in Western societies themselves, what were taken for granted, even within my lifetime, and perhaps yours, Sean, as fully accepted liberal freedoms of speech and inquiry expression and so forth, have been curtailed, uh, not by a dictatorial state, interestingly, as in the former Soviet Union or today in, She's China, but actually, by civil institutions themselves, it's been universities and um, museums and uh, publishers and media organizations, that of charities and cultural institutions and so on. Of various kinds that have imposed various kinds of limits on themselves, such that they police the expression uh, of their members and those who deviate from a prevailing progressive orthodoxy, or are in various ways cancelled or excluded. That's quite new. But it's rather widespread now and, and pervasive. And although, of course, it's true that um, there are enclaves of uh, free expression, um, enclaves or niches like the one we're enjoying now, we're not in the position that people are in in uh, Xi's uh, China or um Putin's Russia, we can still communicate relatively freely, Uh, there are large areas of life, including the institutions I mentioned earlier, which used to be, let's say, governed by liberal norms uh, and aren't any longer. So I think it makes sense just as an empirical observation to say that uh, liberal civilization that existed uh, and could be described as a liberal civilization, um, with all its faults and flaws, doesn't exist any longer. Of course... You might say liberalism as a theory continues to exist, but then so does medieval political theory (laughs) or early modern political theory. It just doesn't describe uh, the world anymore.
1: Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here because the term liberalism is one of those big unwieldy terms that means a million different things to a million different people. What do you mean by liberalism? Just so it's clear what we're diagnosing the, the death of here.
2: The cause of of, of liberalism as a philosophy is the idea that no one has a natural right to rule and that all rulers, all regimes, all states serve those whom they govern. So that this is a view which differs from Plato. Plato thought that um, philosophers had the best authority to rule because they could better than other people perceive truths beyond the shadows of the imperial world. Um, in Hobbes' day, some people believed, many people believed, that kings had divine right to rule. And later on, we've had beliefs according, we have had philosophies which have developed according to which it's the most virtuous people who should rule. And I think actually the hyper-liberal or what is now sometimes called the woke movement, has something of that in it, which is that um, they imagine that they represent virtue better than and progressiveness better than others. Uh, And therefore, they have a right at least to um, shape society according to their vision. But a liberal, and in this sense, Hobbes is a liberal, and I'm still a liberal in this sense, actually, is one who thinks that any sovereign, any ruler, uh, depends for their authority on protecting the well-being of of the ruled. And in liberal theory, it's normally, normally individuals. And when it doesn't do that, then... Any obligation to obey is dissolved. And Hobbes says explicitly, even the book is partly about Thomas Hobbes, of course, as you know, the uh, 17th century political philosopher that wrote the book Leviathan. That's why it's called New Leviathan. And Hobbes said that when, when the sovereign, which could be a king or a, or, or a Republican assembly or a parliament or whatever, but when the sovereign fails to protect the individual from uh, violence for other human beings, when the sovereign Fails to provide security, all obligations are dissolved, and the uh, individual can leave or kill the sovereign. Kill the sovereign. So there is a fundamental equality between the um, the, so- the ruler and the ruled. I think that's the core of liberalism, and that, in that sense, I say Hobbes is still a liberal, and so am I. But it had many, many different meanings later were attached to it about rights and uh, progressiveness and so on, which uh, I don't subscribe to, and neither did Hobbes.
1: You actually call hobbes the first and last great liberal philosopher which might surprise more than a few political philosopher types why is that why is he the first and the last great liberal philosopher for you
2: well it shouldn't surprise them if they knew a bit more than they normally do about the history of political ideas they would know that the the best 20th century scholars of hobbes all regarded him as a liberal so michael oakeshott the british conservative philosopher uh the uh, Canadian Marxist philosopher C.B. McPherson, and Leo Strauss, the American conservative philosopher, they all regarded Hobbes as a liberal. And so it's only philosophers who don't read ideas and their philosophy, which is the majority, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's only those who are surprised by it. So they shouldn't be. But I think the sense in which he is is exactly the sense which I just mentioned earlier, which is that he he doesn't accept any the most virtuous don't have the right to rule. The cleverest or the most intelligent don't have the right to rule. None are appointed by God to rule. States or sovereigns are human constructions or human creations, which exist only so long as they serve the purposes of those over whom they rule. And so that, I think, is, a, is still alive, that idea, not only in philosophy. I think it's alive in the world. And there's nowhere in the world now, there was in the past, uh, even relatively recent past, where anyone rules by prescriptive right, if someone just says, "I have the right to rule you," as uh, King Charles, uh, uh, our King Charles did in this uh, in the Civil War in Britain, the 17th century, you are, you are, I have the divine right to rule. He was executed; he was executed by the Parliament. So that liberal idea, I think, is still quite strong in the world, but it's quite different from lots of other liberal ideas about progress and humanity and rights and so on.
1: I used to teach Hobbes, and I always wondered what it was I liked so much about him, because he is so dark and gloomy. I mean, even if you've never read Hobbes, you probably know his famous description of human life as nasty, brutish, and solitary, and short, that kind of thing. And I think um, what appeals to me in his thought is the tragic dimension, you know, anarchy, for him was never something we transcend it was something we stave off but it remained a permanent possibility that that awful state of nature that he worried about was always lurking just beneath civilization do you think modern liberalism went awry when it lost sight of this and maybe drifted away from hobbes's very limited view of the purpose of the state which is just you know to keep us from eating each other basically
2: i think um Liberalism over time turned into something different. I mean, I, one has to say that, although historically, and I, um, I, in terms of the history of ideas, Hobbes is definitely a liberal. Most people who called themselves liberals subsequently in the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries wouldn't regard Hobbes and don't regard Hobbes as a liberal, because although he has this feature that sovereigns or states serve. The individuals who over whom they rule, he doesn't think that this, that what the state or the sovereign can do to provide security can be limited or should be limited by rights or some other principles. He doesn't think that, and that's a sort of difficulty that many people find in thinking about Hobbes, which is that um, although he thinks the state has a very limited purpose, it can do anything that it judges the sovereign judges that will. Achieve that purpose. So, for example, the state in Hobbes has no obligation to respect freedom of speech. If freedom of speech harms social peace and political order, uh, uh, it can intervene. Hobbes even says that the, the, the sovereign can define the term, define the words used in the Bible to kind of define what those words mean. As you, probably when you taught him, you noticed this, so that we, we can, o- society can avoid the religious wars that were. Raging had been raging in Europe in his time and uh, around his time over what the Bible meant. uh, Peace determines everything, so there's no right to free speech. There's no right to demonstrate that none of these rights can restrain the state. On the other hand, and here he's different from modern liberals, the state can't intervene in society, can't curb um, human beings in order to achieve some idea of social justice or progress or a higher type of humanity, a more civilized uh, or superior or ethically, materi- ethically superior type. Can't do that either. It promote, shouldn't promote virtue. It's it's indifferent to those matters. So it's a very unfamiliar type of liberalism. But I share your view. I'm not sure it's, a, it's a tragic. I would just say it's a reality. Hobbes thought it was a reality, that at any time, order in society can break down anywhere. if if certain, And it can happen quite quickly. In other words, Order is fragile in, in human life. The default condition of human life is not harmony. I guess that's where he differs from many liberals. They've assumed that um, basically human beings want to cooperate. That's what they try and do. And if they're thwarted, it's by tyranny or reaction or evil demagogues or some sort of um, evil force by which prevents them. Hobbes doesn't assume that. He thinks the, the default condition of humanity is conflict and that therefore uh, uh, one can fall into brutal and terrible and civilization forms of that conflict at any time. And I would say that, you know, the history of the 20th century exhibited that in many ways, and the the main destroyers, I guess, of um, human life and peace and uh, uh, the main agencies that inflict violence then were states. But in the 21st century, they're not necessarily states. They can be terrorist organizations or criminal gangs. And so anarchy has emerged now, I think, in the 21st century, as at least as much of a threat to human security and and human freedom as totalitarian and tyrannical states were in in the 20th century. And that's, I think, a relatively new development in, in, in recent times. And it's one which I think makes Hobbes more topical, if you like. I mean, when it was states that were committing vast crimes... His argument that the state should be unfettered in its pursuit of peace was uh, kind of seemed weak because states weren't pursuing peace, they were pursuing other goals and they were killing countless or tens of millions of human beings. Now it's more often the case uh, that uh, um, states are uh, collapsed or are destroyed, and sometimes they're destroyed as they were in Iraq and Afghanistan and in. Um, Libya, for example, by the attempt to bring in a better kind of state. And so there, I think one big error of contemporary liberalism, which has actually affected policies in America and elsewhere, has been the idea that nothing is worse than tyranny, whereas Hobbes's uh, insight, his relatively simple insight, but his rather profound one, is that anarchy can be worse than tyranny. And what's, what's also true is that once you're in a, an anarchical condition, once the state is broken down, once you're in a failed state, it's very difficult actually to reconstruct the state.
1: Well, in what sense is liberalism for you passed into the dustbin of history? I mean, there, liberalism is still very much a thing, um, even if the shape of it has changed, and it is very much alive, if not terribly well. So what does it mean to say that Liberalism has passed away, or died, or, or however you like to put it.
2: Well, as I've said, there are still ideas. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, you could go into a library and pull a book down, and it will have it will describe
2: medieval or ancient Greek and Roman political philosophy to you. In that sense, these ideas are alive. But in the actual world, the actual human world, liberal regimes or liberal societies or a liberal civilization, I think, is in the past. So, uh, well, let me give you a kind of rather obvious example, since. Um, we're talking partly in an American context thirty years ago, I wrote that I thought that what would happen I quote myself perhaps rather vainly in my own in, in this new book of mine I wrote that what I expected to happen in the United States was that as more and more freedoms and activities became covered by rights by legal rights, and when some of those rights were did not reflect a moral consensus in society, but there were rights to do things that were morally conflicted in society, like abortion. I'm pro-abortion, but that's pro-choice, but that's irrelevant here. I thought that what would eventually happen would be that the judicial institutions, up to and including the Supreme Court, would be politicized. They'd become objects of political capture. Now, when I said that thirty odd years ago, people like Dworkin, whom I knew, and uh, in Oxford and others were incredulous because for them it was natural. It was some kind of settled, <laughs> settled fact of life that the majority of judges had, had become liberal and would stay liberal. I never thought that for a moment. I thought that a different dynamic would take place, that the more rights discourse and the practice of rights was extended to morally disputable and conflicted areas... The judicial institutions would be politicized and taken over, and so that I think is a feature of um, if you think of a, a liberal regime or a liberal society, one of which there are uh, judicial institutions that are not politically contested that are um, that aren 't part of the political arena then that 's passed away that 's gone, and so I think also has um, the area of private life of life in which what you say to friends or work colleagues or is not sort of judiciable it 's not actionable. That's much smaller than it it used to be, certainly in in, in Britain, which I know well, and I'm pretty sure it is in America too, in that what used to be a private conversation could be cited against you because it deviates from some progressive norm. So, uh, the defining features of liberalism, not as a philosophy that exists in libraries, but as a, um, a practicing set of institutions and norms has at least become weaker. And I would say it's more of it pretty well gone now, and I don't expect it to come back.
1: We'll be back with more of my conversation with John Gray after a quick break. com slash box. As you know, Nietzsche thought that liberalism was rooted in these Christian ideas about human equality and the value of the human person, but modern liberals rejected the religious roots of these values while still attempting to preserve them on secular grounds and that was a move he thought was destined to fail and you seem to think that hobbesian liberalism was intended to be a kind of political atheism but it eventually shape-shifted into something like a political religion only it didn't recognize it didn't recognize itself as such is that sort of the core problem here or one of them
2: One of the core problems, I mean, I think I talk at some length in the book when I discuss the way in John Stuart Mill, who I thought I think for many liberals is still a a canonical liberal or even the canonical liberal, but he explicitly, undeniably, and overtly adopted the view that from Auguste Comte, the French positive thinker who was an anti-liberal actually, but anyway, he adopted from Comte uh, the idea of a religion of humanity, which... He said should replace all the existing religions and would be better than any of the existing religions. He explicitly took that from Kant and cited and, and said that and wrote that in several places. So, I think it was probably in Mill, at least in Britain, that the that liberalism became itself a kind of religion. But of course, there are still many respects in which it secularized monotheistic. Um, assumptions or values or, or premises. So I, I, I think it, it is undoubtedly the case historically that um, liberalism was a set of footnotes to, um, particularly the liberalism that later emerged as a, as a kind of religion in its own right, to uh, uh, monotheism, to Christian and Jewish monotheism, and as a competitor to it. And um, uh, basically liberals, conventional liberals ninety percent of liberals are adamantly resistant to this view they they, they, they adamantly insist that um, their views at no point depend on anything in in theism but they would say it's a kind of genetic fallacy to think that just because something may have come from theism it depends on that but it's actually I think quite difficult
1: you know it's it has become more difficult for me to identify what I am and it's not just because the fault lines around me are so scrambled. I think on some level it's because and maybe I'm projecting a little bit onto Hobbes I have a a pretty tragic view of political life and because of that I have a fairly modest understanding of the goal of politics which is to navigate this tension between order and chaos with the understanding that nothing is permanent everything is contingent and history has no ultimate direction I mean in so many ways this was the political lesson of the 20th century. And after a handful of decades of liberal triumphalism, which is barely a blink in historical time, by the way, people seem to have forgotten this. And, And this is probably where you and I are maybe most aligned. But you don't think the belief in progress is a complete delusion, right? I mean, the world has indeed gotten much, much better. It's just that that progress isn't fixed, and it's dangerous to believe otherwise.
2: Well, I don't know. It's, um, I say, I mean, what I say in the book is that, um, progress meant in those who believed in it. It didn't mean that things would get better for a while and then get worse. I guess it meant two things, both of which are false. Um, One is that progress was cumulative in the sense that what was achieved in one generation could be carried on in the next generation. That's what Meliorism was. Meliorism as a philosophy isn't just the idea that the belief, which is some societies or some parts of the of history some are better than others i think everybody would accept that whatever their values are actually but it was the belief that the human lot could be cumulatively improved that's to say that certain achievements could be embedded and they would remain fixed you could have some retrogression you could go from stair seven on the escalator of progress back to stair three but then it would just take us would start moving again uh, and you would get back to seven, and then you could get to eight or nine, so you might make um, two steps back, but you would then make two or three steps forward. That was Meliorism, and I think that's clearly false. You might be tempted to think that it was true if you thought of only the last 300 years, but if you look at the larger, um, there was no apocalyptic revelation 300 years ago. Some apocalyptic change in human events, human beings remain what they were before that in ancient Greece and ancient China and um, and elsewhere in then medieval times, they remained basically, I think, um, still what they were in their natures and appetites and so on. And uh, so mediaism, in that sense, is false. And
1: well w- one thing that seems obvious enough at this moment is that liberal societies are experiencing a lot of internal disruption. I mean, maybe maybe the only thing that really unites the far right. And the far left is their contempt for the society that produced them. And you say something in the book that I think cuts right to the core of this. And I just want to read it to you and, and, and ask you what you mean by that. You say in its current and final phase, the liberal West is possessed by an idea of freedom. What does it mean to be possessed by an idea of freedom?
2: Uh, well, the, the sense in which I use it in the book is the sense in which it was used in um, by late 19th century intellectuals in Tsarist Russia were possessed by an idea of freedom, which is that uh, an idea of freedom comes to be uh, prevalent. That means not the reduction of coercion by other human beings or by the state, not a set of procedures which enables people to live together, not... A set of norms of tolerance or peaceful coexistence or even a mutual indifference, <laughs> which enable people to, to live together in some rough and ready way. Freedom means self creation. Freedom means creating yourself as the person you want to be. And that I bite here, I think, is not definitely not in Hobbes. It's not even in Locke uh, or other liberals. But it is in Mill. It is in the chapter of um, Mill's. Essay on Liberty, where he talks about individuality, where he says that anyone who in, inherits their way of living or their what we would now call their identity from the society, from conventions, from traditions, from history, lacks individuality. Individuality means being the author of your own life, changing it, fashioning it uh, as if it was a work of art so that it fits some something unique and authentic about yourself. And I think that is what the West is uh, possessed by. Because the, the reason it's a... Uh, an impossible ideal to realize is that if you want to uh, can of author your life in a certain way and have a certain identity it doesn't mean much or anything unless that identity is somehow accepted by others as well otherwise it's just a a, as it were, a fiction of yours or a dream and that's i think one of the things that's provoked deep conflict in western society because there is the the underlying idea of a strong version of autonomy as a self-creation has become not part of the far-right or the far-left. Um, it's not that which has produced the present conflict. It's not the far-right or the far-left. It's become part of liberal thinking and practice itself. And that, I guess, goes back to Mill and to romantic theorists and philosophers who Mill read. Uh, it's an element in the liberal tradition that wasn't very strong or perhaps present at all there but it's very very strong now so i guess that's what i mean by being possessed by an idea of freedom that unless you can be what you want to be and unless you can actually somehow have that validated by others you're not free well that's not really possible and i think the traditional more traditional liberal idea of toleration which is that um you don't have to be fully validated by other people and they don't have to be fully validated by you they can simply you can rub along as the different miscellaneous personalities um and contingent human beings that you are that seems to me a more achievable ideal but it's not one that satisfies many people today not many liberals anyway yeah i mean
1: I think that the pursuit of individual freedom is good, that the desire to free ourselves from our inherited identities is good and necessary. But we do seem to run into a ditch if we pursue it too far, because the pursuit, as I think you're saying, the the pursuit of self-definition doesn't end with the self, because no one can be wholly self-defined. So it becomes a political contest for recognition. And I don't think liberal politics are equipped to handle that very well or for very long.
2: Well, I agree with that, and especially if it becomes a matter of rights, because then, of course, you have a perpetual um, conflict between the rights of rival groups, basically. (laughs) If these identities, especially if they're framed in ways which are antagonistic or polarized, it's a recipe for unending conflict. I'm not sure, you see, I wouldn't even go as far as you do in saying that is wanting to free oneself from traditional, uh, is necessarily good. I think some people want it so they can go ahead and live like that in what used to be called a liberal society if they want to. But others might be quite
1: happy to just jog along with whatever they've inherited uh, and be left... I think people should have the choice is what I was saying. I don't mean imposing that.
2: No, no, not imposing, but you think it's, I don't think it's even better. I don't think one is better than the other. Mm. I think they're just preferences, actually. And so I would never say, as Mill does, Mill constantly says, people who accept the definition of their inherited identities are, um, he doesn't use the word inferior, but he says, he implies all the way throughout that that they're inferior. Uh, He suggests that um, they're not themselves. They're just, they obey a convention by rote they're puppet-like creatures, and so I wouldn't say any of that. There may be those, I mean, who want to to construct themselves, turn themselves into works of art, (laughs) if you like. They can go ahead and try. But quite a lot of people, at least in the past, didn't want to do that. And I think there are still quite a lot of people who don't want to do that now. And they should have as much freedom and as much respect, it's an important point, I would say, as these others. Uh, I mean, the key point I guess of the book is that the problems of liberal society, or the fact that it's passed away, as I claim, isn't something that's happened, as many conservatives or leftists or others say, because liberalism has been sidelined by Marxism or postmodernism or some other philosophy, or that it's the problems. Of liberalism or the or the uh, the of uh, liberal societies come from within liberal societies come from within liberal societies themselves and they are all problems if you like that liberalism has uh, proved the problems it's generated the contradictions it's generated have proved to be ones that it's not very good at resolving.
1: This contemporary obsession with self-expression and and self-creation um, and status and that sort of thing do you see that as symptomatic of some deep failure of liberal politics, that this was bound to happen because liberal politics did not and cannot satisfy this kind of need?
2: No, I mean, that's a kind of Hegelian view or a a Fukuyama-like view, which says that um, what people want is recognition and that liberal societies haven't been able to, etc., etc. I think that the main challenges to liberal societies now, actually, are quite different, which is that the Economic model of liberal society, which was adopted in, uh, after the collapse of communism, after the Cold War, has left large parts of society behind, not just minorities. There have been working communities, working class communities in, in Britain and American parts of Europe, which have just been more or less abandoned. And, um, but also, large parts of what used to be called the middle classes are, have not seen their incomes or their the standards never being improved much or at all in the last thirty years while the societies as a whole have gotten consistently considerably better so I think the economic model actually of, of Western liberal societies the dominant one after the Cold War during the Cold War, we tend to forget now whether it's within my lifetime we tend to forget that after the second world war there was a model of social democracy which in which the state intervened in many different ways to smooth out the the hard edges of market capitalism and and constrained it. Uh, I think the abandonment of that model after the end of the Cold War has led to deep-seated
1: contradictions, but maybe they're not what you're referring to. They are, certainly in part. I mean, this is. I'm glad you said that because one of the things that irks me about a lot of right-wing types who like to rail against identity politics or wokeism, a term I, I really hate to use because it has been stretched to the point of meaninglessness, in our discourse at least, There is this whole materialist history to be told about the failures of liberal capitalism. And those failures have produced a lot of our political pathologies. And a lot of people on the right don't want to hear about that. And I think that's a huge mistake.
2: I agree with you. And in fact, I say in the book, it's a very simple point, but very hard for many liberals, right-wing liberals in particular, to to understand. I say that what these people call populism is the political blowback against the social disruption produced by their own policies, which they don't understand or deny. That's what populism is. They talk about populism as if it was a sort of demonic thing that arose from nowhere, that uh, it was a few demagogues that whipped it up out of practically nothing. But the reason, I'm not saying there aren't demagogues, but the reason the demagogues were successful in uh, 2016 and later, and not in 1950 or 60 or 70s in Europe and America, is that there were periods, certainly in Europe, and to some extent even in America, of social democracy uh, in which there was a more extensive state the eisenhower state the rooseveltian state even before that in in america which limited the impact of market capitalism on human well-being and provided some protection for its casualties if you scrap that which was done to a considerable extent um, after the end of the cold war then over time you create large sections of the population uh, which are are suffering and dislocate, or had simply have no place in the productive process, and you 've got to expect some sort of kickback, so that 's what liberals call populism they call. Populism, the political movements around them that they have caused, which they don't understand. That's what populism is basically. But you could never get that across to them. Actually, I've I've tried to do this, and they they say, "But it's the demagogues, it's Trump, it's Forrest Johnson, it's uh, Nigel Farage, it's it's all these wicked people." If you could only shut these wicked people up, everything would be fine. Or some of them say it's the Russians. They did, they, you know. They so what they're doing is um, they're denying. Or or maybe just not understanding. Maybe they're just stupid. Uh, They're just not understanding why these movements have arisen
1: when they did. I guess the problem for me, and this is why I'm still basically a liberal, is that I I don't think any of the conservative alternatives are preferable for a thousand different reasons. And I'm not a fan of any imaginable version of authoritarianism. So I don't really have anywhere else to go ideologically. Liberalism, it is.
2: Uh, It's up to you. But um, it depends how far you think the degeneration of liberal society has gone and how far it can remain livable. I mean, one of the things in Europe now is that the uh, far right in um, many European countries, not in Britain yet, but um, in uh, France and uh, Germany, and uh, is now a very substantial political block. In other words, there isn't a flawed liberal society around us, uncontested, which can carry on pretty well whatever happens. There are powerful movements, not exactly like in the 30s, but there are powerful far-right movements, and in some countries also far-left movements, which are challenging it. So the liberal position might be a kind of luxury of history that is now passing away.
1: We'll be back with more of my conversation with John Gray after one more quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and savings. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. I sometimes wonder how long America can continue to exist with the level of Fragmentation and internal confusion that we have, and the same is true of much of Europe. How easy is it for you to imagine a political future where America and Europe cease to exist in any recognizable form?
2: Well, Europe doesn't exist in any recognizable form. <laughs> there isn't a European superstate, and there isn't going to be What there are are a variety of nation states with internal problems of various kinds, and I think that will that will basically continue. They might shift into becoming a kind of I mean what's been happening? In the last few years is that they're shifting into becoming almost a hard right bloc. Not that the far right has taken over, though some people might say it did in Hungary and did in Poland for a while, but that it's the far right which is shaping policy on lots of issues. But it won't become a superstate. As to America, I don't expect the American state to fragment in the way that by secession, I mean, I know some Americans talk about that and texans and californians and others i don't actually expect that i would more expect a kind of um, semi-stable semi-anarchy in which there are lots of regions of american society and of cities and so on which are Semi anarchical. That's also true in places like Mexico, is it not, and um, parts of Latin America? Uh, that, that could go on for quite a long time. The big change, I guess, will be, if I'm right, it will be in the capacity of America to project its power globally. I think that is steeply declining. And I think that will, within your and my lifetime, will be actually seen to be greatly diminished. Because although America still has an enormous amount, the US, has an enormous amount of hard firepower, more than any anywhere else, actually. China's catching up, but also its capacity to use that hard fiber intelligently has not been very great.
1: You actually say something pretty interesting, if that's the right word about America in the book, which is that it's become Schmittian in the sense that we believed rather foolishly that the law could protect liberal values from political contestation, but the law has become indistinguishable from politics. And Trump just pushed us right past the threshold. And now we're in, in my estimation, just a full-blown legitimacy crisis where it doesn't even matter who wins the next election, just something like 30% of the country. Do you agree with that, by the way? That is what I think, but do you agree with that? Do I agree with what? Uh, that, that America's in a legitimation crisis. Oh yes, I, I've written this many times. I. It doesn't matter who wins the next election. Something like 30% of the country will consider it illegitimate. That's that liberal politics, John. That That's something much closer to, to war, really. Well, it's what Schmidt thought politics was. Friends and enemies.
2: And I think the achievement of liberalism in the various countries, or liberals, it was to replace the war by something else or at least attenuate the war. I mean, uh, this was true, by the way, even in my time. Let me give you an autobiographical example. During the Thatcherite period, when I was an active Thatcherite, I remained uh, on terms of close friendship with leading members, both theoretical members and even politicians, in the Labour Party. Uh, so we, we could meet, we could have dinner, we could talk with each other, we could share ideas, didn't agree, didn't didn't shake goals, thought that this great Thatcherite experiment could come to grief in various different ways, as I then came to think, and so on, for slightly different reasons. Um, but that's actually, in America, I would say, it's rare, I would think. Is it not shown for people to... Um, to interact in that way? How many Trumpists ha- have friendly relations with Washington Post liberals? Not many, I think.
1: No, I'd say that's, and that's becoming increasingly so. And that's
2: unfortunate because that's the triumph of the Schmittian model. It's the triumph of friend enemy relations. And once you've gotten to friend enemy relations, I think you're in deep trouble, at least from a liberal standpoint. It's very hard to get back from that situation because both sides want to win. And that means it's a sort of downward spiral, very hard to, I don't say impossible, you know, something could happen that we haven't thought of, but uh, it's very difficult to get. At. So I agree completely with you. And it's one of the things I constantly say, which is that in one sense, it's very important who wins the American election next year, because if it's Trump, the, the changes will be huge and quick, I believe. But in another sense, it doesn't matter at all, because whoever wins will not be accepted, as you say, by maybe a quarter or a third of the American Society, American voters. So the legitimization crisis will just get worse whoever wins. Uh, That's a very profound fact of the world because the world still depends on a kind of shadow of Pax Americana. It still depends on that or has depended on that. And as that is comprehensively removed, I mean, if Trump pulls. American forces out of Europe, which, uh, if he winds up NATO, if he pulls out of the uh, the Gulf where there is now the, the new Middle Eastern war, that would be a very profound change.
1: Yeah, I think the unfortunate truth is that liberalism doesn't really have a solution to a legitimacy crisis.
2: No, I, would say I agree with you entirely, which is why it's so difficult to speculate. I mean, what I don't expect is any new order emerging from this, whether of the right or the left. But just of continued... Disintegration, uh, not into civil war in America. I'm not an American. Some since I've been there, though I spent a long time in America in the 70s and 80s and 90s, so I knew it better then uh, than I do now. But I don't expect a full-scale civil war. But I can imagine a fairly long period, decades, you know, maybe generations of civil warfare, when. Different identity groups, different political ideologies, different parts of America, states of Amer- American states and municipalities, just go their own way with lots of the conflicts that that involves. But with a kind of area, a backdrop, which I think will really still exist of um, high technology, an oligarchy which preserves its own position one way or another, uh, and the rest of the, the society is. Um, doing as best it can, I mean, uh, large parts of it abandoned. That's what I sort of expect, a, a, a kind of hybrid like that could go on for an, an awfully long time. I don't think America faces the internal pressures that, say, Russia does, because Russia has powerful ethnic divisions within minorities, and the state apparatus in Russia, although more ruthless and more violent domestically, is much more corroded and much more corrupt. So I think there is a real possibility that Russia could actually break up. Whereas I don't, I don't actually, you may be more optimistic or less hyperbolic, if you like, than I am. I don't see that as, a, as, as likely in America. I think just continuing decay is a much more uh, likely prospect.
1: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I, I have no idea what's going to happen. I take some solace in the fact that, at least in America, we've survived much, much worse in our past. And, you know, we we may just lumber along in this interregnum for a very, very long time. It may be a very long interregnum. (laughs) It might be. And and look, maybe we need a new order. Um, My fear has always been the road from the present order to the next one is historically, a, a rather bumpy one, and one probably none of us want to take. And I'd prefer to fix the world we have before we tear it down. But I, I don't know. Again, I'm I'm not in the prophecy business, so I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I've been talking about this idea of politics as tragedy,
2: too, for the last few years. And what some liberals and others say is, they say, well, we we want to get to a world where <laughs> tragedy is diminished or... Very few of them say now where there is no tragedy, though some of them say we want to get to a world, some of them have said, in which the only tragedies are failed love affairs or familial disputes and so on. Um, We'll never get to a world like that, I'm sure. But what I think the danger of trying to eliminate tragedy is that uh, in politics, is that in order to survive in any political system and to gain the power and retain the power and exercise the power, you would need to get to a society in which tragedy is um, supposedly diminished or mitigated or or abolished, you have to enter into tragic choices which replicate the tragedy you're trying to um, To get rid of, trying to transcend. So, for example, one of the things that happens in all revolutions, certainly in all the European, Russian, Chinese revolutions and so on, is that once the old regime fails, if it's really knocked down and fails, then the the revolutionary contestants fight among themselves and the one that prevails is the one that's the most ruthless. So that, in um, Soviet Union, which um, early Soviet Russia, which I know the best, the anarchists were the first to be suppressed, then the social revolutionaries, because they were less well organized they were less ruthless. so what actually produces the authoritarianism is the struggle by the revolutionary groups against each other, and that always happens, and that sort of illustrates my deeper point, which is that in order to get to a supposedly post tragic world, you have all kinds of ruthless Tragic decisions have had to be made about shooting anarchists en masse, uh, assassinating uh, murdering and putting in camps and so on various dissident groups and once you 've done that you're back into the world you already you 've never left it actually of of tragic choices so I would much prefer a politics which just which accepted that tragedy was primordial and um, omnipresent and would always be but use this. I mean, this is why I've uh, had a kind of Occam's razor approach to tragedy, which is the aim should be to minimize tragedies beyond what was strictly necessary. And don't go around, multiply them by trying to create new regimes all over the place. Tragedy in politics isn't imperfectibility. We have no idea of perfection. It isn't that progress is always reversible and ephemeral. It's something deeper than that. It's that uh, there are recurring situations in politics, and always will be, in which whatever we do, has uh, deep and, and enduring losses attached to it. And I think that's, that will always be the case. Uh, uh, so I think that's what I prefer. But it's very, I think in order to get a view of the world like that, you do actually have to go back before Christianity to um, uh, maybe to the book of Job, but, but, but also to ancient Greek tragedy uh, where there's no ultimate redemption at all actually in some of the it it recurs a bit in Shakespeare later on in a Christian Christian civilization but you you have to go all the way back to the Greek tragic dramatists to get that sense that human beings are not autonomous in the sense of being ever able to shape the choices they have to make. Tragedies are unchosen choices, choices that human beings don't want to make and would prefer not to make but have to make.
1: Once again, the book is called The New Leviathans Thoughts After Liberalism. John Gray, always a pleasure. Thank you for coming in today.
2: A great pleasure on my part as well. Let's have another conversation in a couple of years,
1: shall we? Let's do it. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think of the episode. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com and share the show with your friends, family, and anyone else who will listen. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The gray area is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com/give.